Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Alrighty, hey, thanks again. The voice of Dan McCarty giving us the intro here for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland here, happy to be joining you on the Cattleman's Call podcast. If you are a repeat listener, thanks for joining us again and subscribing on your Apple or Android devices or those desktop computers if you still have a desktop computer. Uh, today, it's going to be a great conversation that we are going to be having about uh, just people in the beef industry and one person in particular. She has been a leader in the Tennessee beef industry and the U.S. beef industry and on the nas- national, international scale as well. I'm honored to have today Jennifer Houston, uh, president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association for 2019-2020. That's the best way to look at that. I can't believe 2020 is almost here, Jennifer, but Jennifer, uh, thanks for joining us here today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lane. Well, uh, it's been a it's been a busy year. I can't believe it's almost been a year since we were down in New Orleans at the uh, 2019 Cattle Industry Convention. Uh, we we got to, uh, Russell Nimitz, my my TV broadcast buddy, and I we we got to interview you at the the closing general session. And talk about the the upcoming year, and and uh, just tell people more about you. But you know, we we could talk about policy all day long, or, or all the issues impacting the industry. But you know, the purpose of this podcast really is just just to talk about about what's going on out in the countryside and the people in it. And you're one of the people in that industry. And I just think it's so important to 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 share your story uh, to, to to for all those young women out there that that are, are, are getting a start in the industry, whether that's through 4-H, FFA, collegiate programs, and and out on the operations, whether they're, they're starting a career in livestock production or maybe they're, they're part of a family operation. And I, I just think you have a remarkable story, and I think more, more of our, our listeners, our cattle producers, our industry friends uh, need to learn more about it. Uh, but uh, we're actually recording this show in, in Montana, and I told all of our listeners we'd get out of the state a little more to record some of these shows. But you know what? It, I didn't have to go to Tennessee for this no. for this meeting. But uh, uh, Sweetwater, Tennessee is where, where you call home now. You and your family have the East Tennessee Livestock Center. Uh, well, let's just talk about it. Where, let's talk about growing up in Tennessee. Where is your hometown? Where, where were you born? Where were you raised? I, I was born in... Uh West Tennessee, in a little town called Selmer, Tennessee. Uh, the county's McNary. For some of those that are a little older, they might remember the Walking Tall movies. Uh, Buford Pusser was the sheriff there when I was growing up, good friend of my dad, and used to see him down at the Phillips 66 gas station. Uh, every morning when he stopped, that's where all the guys in town gathered to have coffee. So we grew up on a cattle, hog, horse farm, um, in West Tennessee, I uh, was in 4-H, showed horses, showed cattle all the way through. Uh, really a, a great childhood. Not a, not a big farm, but all of my family, all my mother and daddy's family uh, was down there. And so grandmother lived down the road, and I used to tell everybody, uh, I would decide where I wanted to eat supper. I'd say, Dolly, what are you going to have for supper? And my mother was a teacher, so she'd come home to pick me up. And I'd say, okay, what are you going to have for supper? And I'd just stay wherever I liked the food the best. So, Because uh, for those of us in South, food's very important. And uh, and so it was, it was a great childhood. I went to the University of Tennessee, got my degree in animal science, and it's where I met uh, my husband, Mark, and he also was an animal science major. His dad had founded East Tennessee Livestock Center in 1962. Mark always knew that's what he wanted to go back and do. So we got married right out of college, and um, that's where we made our home, there in Sweetwater, where the market was. Um, for the first few years of our marriage, I worked for USDA. And uh, then we had a tragedy in our family. Mark's mom was, was killed one night leaving the market. And um, I was pregnant with our first child a month from delivery and uh, never went back to USDA, just went full-time into the market. And so that's where I've been. That was in 1987, and that's where I've been ever since. Uh, That was my daughter, Virginia, who is a uh, lobbyist in D.C. with the American Seed Trade Association. And then six years later, our son came along, my son, Ross, and he is getting his doctorate at the University of Tennessee in biosystems engineering. So uh, we did all the, we did sports, we did uh, showing cattle, the whole thing. They were both 4-H, FFA, 
all the way through. My son says he never got to go to camp without his mom because I was a chaperone at church camp. Hey, and, my mom was a chaperone hey, on everything, too. FFA camp, yep. you know, when he finally got to go to college, he says, huh, finally my mom's not with me. So, uh, But uh, great kids, and we had a wonderful time with them. You know, I want to maybe jump back uh, to, to, to working, you know, a, a job outside of a family operation. And, of course, family-owned livestock center. Um, you know, uh, what, first off, what was your role at USDA? What, what were you doing there? Um, back in then, when it was still called ASCS, okay. I started out just in the county office, uh, went through the training program to become a county director, and right as soon as that training program was over, we were automating all the county offices. So I actually was the automation coordinator uh, for Tennessee. So I traveled all, we have 95 counties in Tennessee, traveled all the counties, uh, surveying the counties to see what they needed to get internet, what they needed to, uh, uh, with power requirements for computers. Back then, we used IBM System 36s. The bigger ones were the size of a washing machine, and the, the little ones were the size of a two-drawer filing cabinet. So I did that for five years, and I was the, the voice on the phone when they had problems, and and, and they called me, and about that time, we automated the market. And the funny thing, my mother-in-law at that time was still alive, and she would assume that just because I knew everything there was to know about a System 36, I knew everything there was to know about the computer at the market. But uh, that's sort of been, been my thing, and so I did that, like I said, until Virginia was born. Well, I wanted to bring that up just because so many young families or Families that have been on the operation for 40 or 50 years are dependent on that off-farm income. And, uh, and then, of course, you, you moved into the, the livestock center there, uh, uh, of course, uh, tragic circumstances, of course. But uh, you can relate to those. Yeah, Those absolutely. young people, the, those people that have been in the industry, that it takes multiple incomes to be successful. It does, especially getting started. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that, you know. Uh, so many of our folks, so many of my customers down there have off-farm jobs. Sometimes both the husband and the wife have off-farm jobs, but, but we still can contribute to the beef industry. We still can have our cows. We still can run our operations. And sometimes, as far as being advocates for the beef industry, it's an even better opportunity for us to tell our story when we do have an outside job or we, have, we see people that are not so wound up in our beef community. So going into a, to a livestock marketing side of things, what were some of those big changes that, that you saw when, when you joined the, the, the family business on your, on your husband's side? Well, when I first started, we weren't computerized, and uh, we do a lot of feeder calf sales where the, they're commingled as the animals come in because we have a lot of small farmers. So uh, Mark's dad was one of the innovators in Tennessee about starting the feeder calf. So they come in, and they're graded by the state, and then they're sorted according to size and uh, sex and breed. And then they're putting pins, and then we sell the pins that night. Well, piece of cake now that we have computers but when I first started there all this was by hand so all during the days you're taking cattle in you were painstakingly recording the weights and the producers that were in every pen and then when the sale was over your your basically your work just started then you had to put the price that pen raised and we would work all night and literally you'd uh, I had a lady that worked for me. She just retired a few years ago. She'd worked since the beginning. She literally had a dent in her forefinger, a uh, permanent dent from all the years doing it by hand. So probably that was the biggest change when we computerized. And so the computer did all that, that paper shuffling and all that calculations. And I don't know that I would have wanted to stay in the business as the office manager if we'd still been doing it uh, by hand, that's for sure. So computerization, we always tried, I guess, because of the connection. Mark's dad was um, um, he was an extension specialist, and then he was what was then called secretary of the Tennessee Livestock Association, our exec. So we always really worked closely with UT and the Cattlemen's Associations uh, for education purposes and really tried to be innovative uh, as much as a small family market did we uh, we've been videoing cattle since 1981 uh, when mark came back to the business and we had a video camera of the size it still looks like you only see it in the ma the major television stations where you hefted it on your shoulder and carried the bag by your side so we did video sales when nobody much was doing those back in our part of the country um 
we had the first uh, electronically ID'd sale in east of the Mississippi. Uh, in with some of our feeder calf sales, we're still doing some of those sales. Uh, gosh, we we started doing Holstein steers like we did the feeder cattle and the graded and the grouped ones because we had a big dairy area in our area, and so these Holstein steers were coming on our regular Wednesday market and and not really realizing the price that they could if they were grouped just like we group feeder cattle, and we know larger groups bring better prices. Uh, so we've always tried to really stay abreast and, and be progressive and to do everything we could do to help our farmers and our ranchers get the maximum for their cattle with whatever their system they're using. Now, to help those producers, you know, uh, have a have an upper hand, of course, uh, how did you then become involved with a specific county or, or state associations there in Tennessee that really has uh, taken you to where you are today? Did, did that start on the county level then? Uh, it, it did somewhat. We, did, you know, we were active in the county association. Mark was president for, for many, many years. But when I said that, that Mark's dad was with the Livestock Association, uh, just a few years after we were married, um, we split the Livestock Association into a cattleman's and a pork producers. And so the cattleman's sort of had a new start. East Tennessee Livestock Center was our charter member, and we were just a very big supporter of that. And at that time, we started a cattle women's uh, group. So I was actually the second president of the cattle women's group and was serving in that role when the Beef Promotion Act and Order was passed. And uh, we were very interested in that because Mark's dad was a very big believer in checkoff. And so they were checking off when I first joined the family, 10 cents ahead at the market voluntarily and sending that to the old National Livestock and Meat Board. So when the Beef Promotion Act and order was passed, and we worked really hard because uh, for some of you history buffs, Tennessee alone, our Farm Bureau contingent, basically had enough votes to kill it the first two times. And so finally we worked hard and got Tennessee Farm Bureau neutral on it the third time. And our 600,000 members there in Tennessee uh, did not defeat uh, that. So because of our involvement in the voluntary checkoff, uh, I was really interested in forming this new beef council for Tennessee. And the cattlemen had three votes on that. And so they asked me to be one of their representatives. So that's really how I got started uh, on the Tennessee Beef Industry Council, also serving on the State Cattlemen's Board, uh, represented Tennessee at the old National Livestock and Meat Board. Then when we merged, I just kept being involved at the state level at, and at the national level. was actually on the executive committee in the uh, around 2000 when the children were small. And at that time, and I wasn't able to go any further. And I tell people, you know, I wondered at the time, was, was that my opportunity? Because uh, I was on the executive committee of NCBA, but there's just no way that I was willing to leave leave small kids. Plus, we were selling a lot of cattle then, and it just didn't work into my, my life. And so I said, well, I'm going to still stay involved, which I did, chairing committees and whatever. And then after the children were out of the house or in college, then I was asked to be the regional, which regions two uh, federation director on the executive committee, which means uh, the Federation of State Beef Councils. And so that's sort of restarted that um, that path to leadership. But my dad was um, involved in ag politics big in Tennessee. And, and Mark's What dad, was his name? His name was Jerry Barron. He uh, started out with Farmers for Senator Howard Baker, one of the greatest statesmen uh, that we ever had. And... Um, Unfortunately, due to another tragedy in the family, uh, he left the farm for a while. He and mom and uh, worked for Howard Baker. Ended up in D.C., so we do we had connections in D.C. Worked for USDA for uh, he was director of governmental Inter of director of governmental affairs for USDA for several years uh, after Howard Baker became chief of staff for Reagan. So, ag politics was was sort of part of the way I grew up, and it's just. Just being involved is just something I like to do. And I think it was the extra challenge, you know, being outside the market. That's, that's a pretty uh, time-consuming job, as a lot of our farms and ranches are. And we also stalker calves and had mama cows. And, and I think getting out, to me, was was a way to stretch myself and, and uh, keep being a lifelong learner. 
Could you maybe describe more about what the Federation of State Beef Councils is and, and, and how you learned just just how you grew there as a lifelong learner? Yeah, well, start out at the National Livestock and Meat Board, which had a beef industry council, a pork council, a lamb council. And so back over 25 years ago, um, a lot of states already had beef councils, but not all of them. And they came together to figure out that there's more they could do together than they could by themselves. So they formed the Beef Industry Council of the National Livestock and Meat Board so that they could share, um, they could share promotional ideas, they could share graphics, they could share recipes. And then as, especially after the Act in Order was passed in 1985, then more and more states formed beef councils because that was the way that uh, by the acting order saying 50 cents had to stay in the state, it had to be administered by a qualified state beef council. So we ended up with almost all of our states have beef councils. And this federation stayed together, and then when the federation merged with the National Cattlemen's Association in 93, it stayed intact, and it's, it's become even more independent in that it um, works together again, whether it's graphic design, whether it's uh, now website hosting, uh, things like that, uh, email hosting, all that type of thing. It allows states like Tennessee's a state with not a lot of money uh, as compared to some of our big cattle states. So if we can share a dietitian service, if we can share graphic designs, uh, and not every state have to go out and hire somebody, then it makes those checkoff dollars that are so precious and we're still at a dollar ahead like we were in 1985, it makes them go a little further. So that's the beauty to me of the Federation. Plus, then we also make up half of the operating committee along with the Cattlemen's Beef Board that really looks at all of the authorization requests and all the projects that come before to try to get national checkoff dollars. And in that state federal thing is so important or state national the beef board has sort of the national view and the the people on the federation side serve on their own state beef council so they can say well i can see how that program how can we roll that out in oklahoma or how can we roll that out in florida so i think it's a it's a great way to work together i think we all know working together we get a lot more accomplished than we do by ourselves. And, and those state beef councils, they're made up of, of different agriculture groups from Farmers Union, Farm Bureau, uh, the, the, the differing cattle groups that, that many states have, and, and that's, a, that's a way for all, all parties to be represented in, in how those promotion dollars are spent. Yeah, every state's different. Uh, we have about as many different ways, but they're all made up pretty much of the important organizations in their state who are interested in having investment in the beef industry, whether it's appointment by the cattlemen's and the Farm Bureau and the markets, or whether it's elected like they are in Nebraska. It gives the average producer a chance to really engage, and I think that's the beauty of it, is that when you really look and see who serves on your state beef council, uh, they're people just like you. You know, they're farms and ranches, and they're taking maybe one day out every quarter at a minimum, uh, to really try to make sure that that 50 cents that stays in your state is spent the best way that they know how to get the most bang for their buck. And um, that's the great beauty of the beef checkoff. It's administered by just just cattlemen all over the nation. So th thanks for explaining that. I, I just think it gets very complex a lot of the time. And uh, just having that uh, that background, I, I think, does help a lot of people out because it can be confusing when you're, when you're looking at all these different <laughs> different things and what you may read on, on Facebook. <laughs> but uh, so obviously you, you mentioned that you took a little time away from, from the national scene, uh, uh, but of course volunteered and served on committees there when, when your kids were, were, were uh, growing up there. And so obviously they they went off to college, yeah, and started to grow up a little more. Uh, so so when did it click again that you know hey this is this is an opportunity? What what, what were your husband's thoughts on that? I guess. Well, when when uh, he he always was very super supportive, uh, as as you can imagine of the two of us, I'm the one that talks a lot more than he does. <laughs> so uh, he he doesn't begrudge me being the one that gets to go to more meetings and. Uh, so he's always been very supportive because he grew up in that family that was a very big believer in the checkoff and, and self-help and, and that nobody's going to tell our story but us. Uh, he just approves that us means me doing it for us. So um, it was I was still a chairman of a committee 
I'm trying to think which one. I think it was New Product and Innovations at the time. And uh, some of the southeastern cattle producers came to me and said, uh, would you be willing to serve as our Region 2 rep on the Federation, which is a three-year term, which puts you on the executive committee. And uh, we talked about it. You know, how much more time would it would it take? Like I said, I was a soccer coach and um, – Sunday school teacher and FFA advisor and but all that had ramped down quite a bit with with the children gone although I still was coaching soccer at the time at the high school level and um, I said yeah I think that's something I would like to do to get back involved um, on a leadership level so I did that after my three years and then I was approached to uh, run for vice chairman of the federation uh, which I did uh, the first year I did not get it which is another bit of advice to folks is, is persevere. Don't give up, you know, just because it's not your time at one time, it may be again. So um, actually I was told, they said, you know, you need to serve on the operating committee a year, which I had not done yet. And I said, okay, I'll be willing to do that. So I served on the operating committee a year, uh, came back, interviewed next year, became vice chairman. Uh, so, you know, there's always bumps in the road, but if you, you know, if you keep a positive attitude and, I uh, can't get your feelings hurt too easy. Obviously, I am as competitive as anybody. I love to win. And when we go in a contest, those of us that are that way, you want to win. But sometimes you realize, and I did after a while, I said, you know, that was a valuable year to serve on the operating committee before I went further into leadership and see how that process works from the inside. Uh, so, obviously, you made your, your ways through there. Um, and then served on the executive committee, um, and last year you became pre- well, yeah, th- this year technically still uh, became president uh, of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Now, uh, are, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on the history here. Are you that just you're just the you're, you'd technically be the first NCBA female president? Technically second. second. Yeah. Joanne um, Smith, who was basically the reason we have a checkoff, was still president when it was National Cattlemen's Association. And that's Association. why I was asking. Yeah. Yes, it was still NCA. Yeah, but. she was still NCA when Joanne was, was uh, president. Jan Lines from Kansas was the second one, okay. along around 2000, about okay. 18 years ago. So I'm either the second or third, depending on how you count it. Okay. But even more to me, and that, that, I don't think about that a lot, yeah. but... Uh, with the amount of cattle that are in the southeast, I'm only the fourth from the southeast. Yeah. And to me, that's even a bigger deal um, than the female thing, uh, that I'm proud to represent the southeast and all of our small producers. And uh, and you and I have talked about this quite a lot, and uh, uh, you're just a leader in the industry. And uh, but, but I think... Uh, uh, 20, 2019 is a big year for, for women in agriculture, though. 1969, uh, uh, girls were allowed to be in the FFA. And, and this, I'm going to go on a side note here. I'm going to get in the, in the sagebrush, folks. <laughs> I had the opportunity to speak with the widow of the California State FFA president who put the motion forward to allow uh, girls in the FFA. And he actually, they relocated to Montana and he served in the legislature and he he passed away a few years ago, but uh, Montana just received their first national FFA officer that 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 is a, that is a young lady, and I think that's amazing. And so I got to talk with the widow of the California State FFA officer that put that motion forward, and I believe it only passed by one or two votes. Yeah. And just think of the impact and the opportunities that vote and to go against the the flow of all those other big states and delegates where it's just all men in that room and 50 years later to see the impact that that decision and uh, that forward thinking had on all of agriculture it's great to see what what's out there now whether you're looking at the animal science departments that are majority females now uh, whether you see people in ag business you know one thing I did when I started out on the National Livestock and Meat Board, I was, number one, very much younger and very much more female um, than anybody on the meat. There was there was a couple of females, but not very many. It was mostly older um, men who I re- respected uh, very much so. A lot of my uh, role models and mentors came from, from those folks, but 
there wasn't many females and there wasn't certainly one many young people so now it's really neat to go to um, you know montana stock growers and other conventions and see the enthusiasm of our young people a lot of which do have those off-farm jobs you talk about but they want to be involved in the industry and and they're hoping whether it's their family or or some other way that they get to go into production agriculture maybe they're doing it on the side and so I, I I'm really optimistic because I really believe we lost a generation uh, after yeah. the after the bad times in the 80s and the 70s. I think a lot of, uh, especially in the 80s, a lot of our parents told us, you know, don't go into agriculture, do something else. And especially our, our young men, they went off and, and they got off farm jobs. And so we, I think we have a real gap between our enthusiastic young uh, millennials, if you want to call them that, but 20s and 30s. Uh, up into late 50s, 60s folks, but though that 40-something, we're, we're missing a lot of them, and I think it's because they were not encouraged to come back to the farm, and I think uh, I'm certainly a lot more optimistic now. We listen to all the economists, and uh, our exports are, are blowing and going, and we have dem- strong domestic demand. I think it's a great time uh, to be in the beef industry, not to say that we don't have bumps in our individual areas, we've had some terrible natural disasters over the last couple of years, uh, which just, you know, that's one more slap in the face. But unfortunately, that's part of farming and ranching, and, and we know that, that that's part of it. And But yet, we still are out there doing it. So I'm encouraged. I think we've got a lot of great young people, young adults that are that are in this industry. And, and you're right, it's because they were allowed to be in 4-H. I wasn't in FFA because we really didn't. Our, our FFA chapter at that time only did auto mechanics, and so I wasn't interested. But I was a 4-H'er all the way through and uh, did public speaking and showed cattle and, and all that type thing. And my kids, luckily, were both of them able to be both, 4-H and FFA, uh, which I think is fabulous. So, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to include young people and women in agriculture. You, this could really be uh, breaking barriers as we move forward. So it's, you know, there's so many uh, individuals that have made such a huge difference in, in the ag industry, stepping up into leadership. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there that may say, well, it's, it's kind of, it used to be an old boys club or, or my state or county, it's an old boys club. But... Uh, Really, we need to look past those stereotypes and and push, put push through the maybe even the the pushback you may get from the 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 established clubs, if you want to call them that way. Uh, what, what what is your advice, or just for those young people that and and, and anyone in general, whether it's a whether it's a a, a female, young man, any young families together wanting to step in, up in leadership together, just being involved on the county yeah. or state national level. Just don't let anybody else set your boundaries. I think part of it, I grew up in a family of girls on a farm. And so if my dad or my granddaddy wanted anything done, they didn't have a choice but depend on us girls. So the point of that was is I didn't think there was anything I couldn't do. And, And I think none of us did. And so sometimes you just have to, whether it's blindly go in and just assume that I can do it if I feel that I have the skill set and, and develop that skill set. That's the second thing so that, you know, I don't want to be the token woman. I hope I'm not the token woman. Yeah. Uh, I want to be for what I am. And sometimes we have to develop the skills, whether that's public speaking, uh, whether that's just being confident in the knowledge that we have. Uh, you know, it's great to see these young folks, young women judging, judging livestock shows. Didn't see that much when I was showing. You know, it was all, you know, older guys, college professors, some of that old boys club. Um, someone said, did you hit that? I said, well, maybe I did, but maybe I didn't slow down enough to notice, you know. It's like, catch me if you can because uh, I'm pretty determined when I want to be, and I think that's something that, that we need to instill in our young people is that have perseverance. If you get knocked down once, get up again. If you don't get it the first time, if it's something you believe in, try again. And, and that's my second thing that I tell young people is find your passion. Whatever part of the beef industry, and it's usually beef people I'm talking to, if it's the sustainability story, if it's the nutrition story, if it's the story of the land, whatever it is, find what really uh, makes you happy, makes you passionate, what you want to tell people about. Because we do. We're, we're here on the land because that's where we want to be. And um, 
Find your passion. Second thing, engage. Engage at whatever level you can. If in, in it, this point in a young person's life, it may just be at the county level because they've got young kids, and, and maybe mom and dad are the ones going to state convention or whatever. But plug in at whatever level you can and, and get involved. Serve on committees. Speak up. Don't just assume. Uh, ask questions. Be involved, and, and because we need your voice. We need everybody's voice because that's the only thing that makes us better. Well, Jennifer, I, I think we're having a great conversation here, and I, I, I know our listeners are picking up on, on these bits of information. We're going to continue to, to share bits of information, but we're going to take it just a quick commercial break, but we'll be back with Jennifer Houston, cattle producer, cattle woman from the great state of Tennessee and president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association right after these words. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows when it comes to the issues in Washington, there's simply no room for gray area. Trade, fake meat, the cost and impact of the Green New Deal. The decisions being made today affect the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers. And what matters to cattlemen matters to us. It's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more. As promised, we're back here today with the Cattlemen's Call podcast. Jennifer Houston, president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, is with us here today. Uh, she's going to be wrapping up her, her year as president of the NCBA. Um, there's been a lot of events you've been attending this this year. You've uh, been to the White House a few times. Um, you know what? What, were, what would you, what would your dad be thinking, seeing you behind the president of the United States? I don't want to choke you up here right now, but uh, obviously, that's a just a big opportunity, and his involvement uh, really shaped uh, the the path that you're on now. Now I'm getting choked up, Jennifer. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Lane. Uh, they would be very proud. My mother and daddy both were really uh, involved in in politics, and and mother was able to see some of it. She was able to be in New Orleans with us. Uh, who would have thought? You know, who would have thought that three times this summer that I was standing by the president in the Roosevelt Room. Uh, you know, I'd been to see, been to the White House when Dad was up there and, and that type thing, but it's a whole different deal that you're part, uh, that you're part of it. I, I had a really out of uh, sort of weird experience. I was in New Orleans after convention and was able to go through, this was after the Japan signing, was able to go through the World War II Memorial and came to a, a poster or picture of the peace signing in the Pacific after World War II. And all these guys were lined up behind them, and there was this little desk, and there was the American, which right now I'm blank, who was there, and the Japanese general. And it was almost exactly the same size desk that Ambassador Lighthizer and the Japanese ambassador had set and it was about 60 years ago. And I just thought, wow, how far we've come, you know, that we were in a, a war against them and now they're our number one uh, beef export customer. And we're gathering, or we were gathering in the Roosevelt Room for such a, a happy occasion because they're thrilled to death that we've got that kind of access. And we as cattlemen are thrilled. And I don't know, maybe it was just me being a history nerd, but that just really struck me as that was a moment in time. Oh, well, we'll both regroup here, Jennifer. <laughs> For those that don't know me, I'm a soft-hearted guy. That runs on both sides of my family. My, my genetics are bad on, on, on being a soft-hearted man. But, you know, it, some people can say it's a pretty contentious time in politics, in the countryside and whatnot, but uh, there have been a lot of wins uh, that, that can be classified as wins uh, in the development of, 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 of beef opportunities and just to have an opportunity for, for agriculture to have a voice in Washington, D.C. and on the national scale. What, what are some of those tips you have for uh, our friends listening here today about uh, stepping up into leader I, I know we've talked about stepping up into leadership and being uh, being engaged but I guess uh, let me rephrase here I'm rambling friends I'm sorry about that but this is why we don't edit these things I can see how bad the host is but 
what are some things that maybe you you may maybe have done maybe differently in the past? Maybe things that you would have uh, stayed on the same path. What what are some of those learning opportunities you you uh, went through over over the past uh, few years in leadership? I think the biggest thing I had to learn was to listen. Uh, I'm sort of a, a full speed ahead type person, so uh, and it was it was a little hard when especially when I was a young person and, and you think you've got all somebody said it yesterday I was the smartest 22 year old well maybe I felt sort of like that and and you have to learn to negotiate especially when you're a young person uh, not necessarily a female but any young person that comes on a board a very well-established board maybe they're older folks and 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 maybe it's going back into your farm and talking to your dad or your granddad same thing you got to sort of temper that enthusiasm that you have uh, and, and and really see the wisdom uh, and learn to see all sides. I think someone said that's your worst and your your best trait and your worst trait is I can see all sides. But I think it does help you understand, uh, can can get you a little confused because things are not black and white many times to me. They're, they're gray because I can see all sides. Uh, and, and But, you know, that's one thing you had to, I had to learn and, and probably a lot of young people do is that, It'll come in due course, and I don't mean you have to wait your turn, but you do have to, to listen more than um, more than you talk sometimes and and learn from some of these experiences that these people have and because and, there's certainly no need to reinvent the wheel, and you don't have to be necessarily a, a terrible student of history, but we do need to know what's come before us. And so I think the best boards, the best officer teams, are mixtures of experience and um and a breath of fresh air, I think that allows us to, to look at things with a different light without abandoning or, or we certainly don't need to redo the things that have failed us in the past unless something major has changed. So uh, being able to, to engage without uh, antagonizing people, being able to learn from people that had gone before us and, and pick you out a mentor, whoever that is. Doesn't even have to be the same sex. Someone that, that you admire in the industry or, or even in your church and um, see what they do. See what's successful for them and um, model yourself after that. I think that's a great. I had a lot of great mentors. Uh, Joanne Smith was certainly one of the people uh, that I looked up to um, so much when I was a, a teenager and, you know, thinking, gosh, if she can do it, uh, so can I. You know, you don't know if it's going to work out for you. It doesn't always, but uh, you certainly have to strive that way or it's not going to. So what what are some of the brightest uh, opportunities or memories you've had uh, serving on executive committee and over the last year obviously we talked about being at the white house and, and, and being a part of significant opportunities for the u.s uh, cattle industry but what, what are some of those ones that may, maybe uh maybe folks don't don't see out in the spotlight I, you know very privileged uh, i got to speak at the wall street journal global food forum i think the first farmer rancher that ever been on that which is sort of uh a consortium of people that are involved in the food industry, but not all of them are friendly to agriculture. And, and that was a, that was a very big privilege and a little, a little intimidating, but I felt it was important that, that we tell our story about sustainability and about nutrition and about uh, the good things that beef does. Getting to go out and meet folks, that's probably the best thing. I've seen some places that I wouldn't have seen some, some beauty in this great nation but just going out and talking and visiting the folks is is something i enjoy i haven't made every state i have made almost every state where we have an affiliate over the last couple of years and you know doesn't matter what kind of resources we have we have varied resources from the um from the high desert of utah to the the humid south to the northeast to up here in montana where it's beautiful but very cold in the winter uh it doesn't matter we we utilize our use resources as best we can we all come out with a with a high quality beef and we're all just really in our hearts down to earth uh salt of the earth people that want we're in the industry because we want to be in the industry and it's not just an industry and probably shouldn't even use that word except there's not a great one to take its place 
but it's it's a livelihood to us. We're not just doing it for profit and loss. We're doing it because we love the land, because we love our animals. And and seeing that passion all over this nation uh, gives you a pretty good feeling. We don't always agree. We're not always going to agree on everything. That's agriculture. Uh, we're very different. I was speaking before the Senate Ag Committee, and um, one of the other testifiers and I weren't quite agreeing on a certain issue. And this senator said, well, I did just make it easier for us if y'all all agreed. And I just came within about 30 seconds of saying it would be easier for the nation if y'all all agreed, too. But we don't all agree. And I told him, I said, Senator, we're independent folks. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We have our own opinions. Uh, we're not afraid to come together, you know, talk it out, uh, Sometimes it can't be worked out, but many times we come to the table and we can find a pathway forward because we're willing to listen, going back to listening, and because we want what's best. We want us, this industry, this this livelihood to be available for our children and our grandchildren. So so looking ahead, uh, obviously there there's still responsibilities uh, when your year as president is up, but... Uh, what does your husband Mark think about that? Uh, what, <laughs> no. What, what, what are your plans? You're going gonna to just uh, go uh, on vacation to go on vacation? Uh, I've got a lot of airline miles, that's yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, he asked me the other day, my husband did. He said, what are you going to do when you come back home? And I said, well, I guess I'm going to do what I did before he left. He just looked at me and laughed and shook his head. Uh, he said, you've been replaced as far as at the market. I think I have been. Uh, it will be fun to be home more. Uh, Am I necessarily counting the days or looking forward to it? No, it's been a it's been a great ride, and um, I, I could do it all over again. I think maybe maybe I couldn't. That's a lot of a lot of time on an airplane, but it's been great. And uh, but it will be nice to be at home more than maybe a Saturday Sunday. Uh, it, it's it's a lot of travel, and I chose to do that. It's you know it's not necessarily so. I don't want to discourage anybody from going into leadership at NCBA that you have to be gone all the time. I was lucky enough that I had a very flexible job, had a supportive husband, a great market. That when we started this this journey, when I was asked to be to run for vice chair, we all got together at the market and the family and said, okay, we don't know where this is going to end up, but if it does end up uh, as president. Are we in for the long haul? And and we all agreed, and so far all of us have stayed together, and uh, and it's been it's been great to have that support system at home for sure. So what what's uh, the future look like for the the livestock center? What 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 is uh, maybe maybe some of the uh, what what's the future of it look like? Is it staying in the family? What what's the what's the uh, I guess the uh, yeah. transition of it going to look like? We're we're really beginning to think about that. Uh, Unfortunately, at this time, um, Virginia is very happy with her uh, role in ag politics, and uh, I see her coming back to Tennessee, but I see it more coming in back in a political uh, ag policy type program. Uh, Ross is all in renewable fuels, so I don't really see. I think they'll always have the farm. They'll always have their land. They'll always have their cattle. Uh, I don't see any of them running the market right now, so we're we're really starting to uh, – so if anybody knows someone who wants to uh, run a market in Tennessee, um, let us know. We're starting to, starting to see what this looks like because, I, you know, we're going to stay involved in the cattle business. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine us without cattle on the farm. Uh, but Mark loves to do stalker cattle. And uh, through all these years, we've had to do the stalker operation working around the market days. So that means they maybe they, they ought to get pulled today, but no, it's sale day, so there's nobody to pull those animals. So we have to. So he tells everybody he doesn't do stockering like it ought to be done. But uh, so we're looking forward to, to just being the cattle business and sort of see. So over the next um, next year to th- probably after I finish the officer team, which is after next year, after 2020, we'll be taking a hard look at at what that what that means. I'd love for it to stay in the family. But we don't have a lot of family. Uh, it's uh, we were not a uh, a family that had large families. So uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Well, uh, I, I just uh, maybe for our listeners that haven't joined uh, the Cattleman's Call podcast before, a great conversation with one of our shows with Bill Rischel of uh, Nebraska, talking about uh, he had three daughters that had great careers elsewhere, and he wanted that ranch and the, the genetics on the seed stock side to, to continue on. And 
partnered up with a great young 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 family, Trey Wasserberger out of Wyoming and his wife Dana. And it's a great story about, you know, it, 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 I just take my hat off to folks that, you know, don't sell out and, and uh, you know, develop it. And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen with you guys, obviously, but just that story that Bill shared about, you know, opening up and saying, hey, we're going to get these young people. They're not from this area at all, but they want they're willing to fight and, and work hard every day. And I just encourage those that haven't heard that that show to go and listen to it. Yeah, that is, and and that's certainly something we're looking at. If if someone and we've we've been quietly looking for several years, uh, it's it's a tough business to a certain extent. It's a business with high risk. It it uh, it's been great for us, but not everybody is comfortable with that level of, uh, you know, to to watch a pot load of cattle go away that a couple of years ago was worth eighty to a hundred thousand dollars, and it's on a handshake, and you hope that check comes in. Uh, but but we've enjoyed it. Uh, we've enjoyed working for our farmers and ranchers, so we don't want that to go away. So we're going to look really hard. And, and something may change within the family. Who knows? Uh, who knows? So a question that I have is, how many cups of sugar do you put in per gallon of sweet tea? Well, unfortunately, Lane... Um, I had to learn to watch my weight a long time ago. <laughs> so although my grandmother's tea, you could stand a teaspoon up in it and it'd still stand up straight. Uh, when I make sweet tea for my customers, for a gallon, I put in a cup to a cup and a half of sugar. See, I had a, I had a, in college at the Alpha Gamma Row fraternity at Montana State University, We uh, for a year we had a, a retired Navy cook. And he was from the state of Georgia. And I bet, I, I think... I could be wrong in this, but I wrote down the recipe. He was putting two and a half to three in. And I'm thinking that's too much. That's a little much, yeah. And uh, uh, But every day he had sweet tea. And I and we, we have a lot of friends in the South, so I grew to love sweet tea. Oh, I grew up tea. with it. I no. do like it. But, and I, um, that, I, that's why I just, I, I just ask other people where, where sweet tea is prevalent. Because, you know, you get up here in the northern place, it, it's tough to get sugar up north here. No, <laughs> I guess. No, I we have know. sugar beets galore right down the road here uh, here, here in Montana. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I just, that's just, you know, my That's a privilege question. if I let myself drink truly southern <laughs> sweet tea much anymore. But it's good stuff. I grew up with it, like I said. My grandmother, uh, we have a family story of my granddaddy, and uh, we had this sweet tea on the table, and granddaddy would eat strawberries with milk on them and with sugar. And and Dolly, my grandmother, had fixed him that. And finally he says, well, hell, Dolly, you finally got those sweet enough. And my husband and, and, were, and son were eating them with him and said it was just like a pile of sugar on top of the berries, you know. So that's just the, the way we cook down south. But it's okay. It's all good. It's all good. Well, Jennifer, I think we've had a great conversation here today, and I'm glad you, you took some time to just, to just to share your story and hopefully inspire uh individuals to step up within within agriculture with that whatever association or, or breed or, or crop or whatever it may be um, and, and for those joining us here today um, there's anything else you want to share with the, our listeners here on the cattleman's call before uh, we we head to the next banquet <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've done a couple of those this year uh it just like i said be involved and and that's Whatever level, like you said, it could be a breed association. Not have to be the cattleman. Uh, I hope it is National Cattlemen's Beef Association at some time. But just find that passion and, and be involved. Agriculture is a wonderful industry. Whatever, um, whatever part you're in, uh, it's we the people we meet, and it's a small, small world. Never make anybody mad because you're probably going to see them again. Uh, it's, but it's great that, that it's like going to an NCBA convention or a state convention is like a family reunion to a certain extent. And I think that's something that we can hold different from basically anybody else's job is that, uh, we're connected by the land and the animals to where it is a family. Well, Jennifer, it's been uh, great getting to know you uh, over the past few years. And I know we'll continue to see each other, uh, whether it was that ride back from the Country Music <laughs> Hall of Fame where I loved your Mickey Mouse, your red and, and uh, white polka dotted cowboy boots uh, to, to when we really got to, to know each other on, on at the Public Lands Council yes. meeting down in Arizona. We got to take a beautiful train ride with uh, public lands ranchers from uh, – I don't know what that, when, no, I want to say Winslow. No, I'm thinking of an Eagle song standing on the corner in Winslow, <laughs> Arizona. 
<laughs> but we got to got to take a, a train ride and yeah. uh, in a cabin, and there was a bar cart for myself. You know, just just saying that. But uh, I enjoyed that that train ride going to the to the, rims, beautiful, the, the yeah. Grand Canyon. And you know, that's another thing though is you know uh, you're you're from the southeast down there, but you have just uh, immersed yourself in all the different aspects of the beef industry and the different regions and. That's so important to understand what other people are going through with the different state issues, regional issues. Yeah, I didn't think there was any way that I could rep. You know, when when I saw where this was going, uh, I didn't think there was any way that I could represent uh, the nations, farmers and ranchers, if I didn't know what their problems were. And so that was why I love going to states. I, I went, what I've been to PLC three or four times to see. Uh, we don't have we have public lands in Tennessee, but they're not grazed public lands, and so uh, I, I say you folks out there that do that have uh, all the problems the rest of us have plus a whole another set. But I have enjoyed uh, not that it's all fun; it's not. There's very serious issues, but I, I, I hope that I've been able to speak knowledgeably on those issues and and represent those folks as well as I do the guys from the southeast. And you know, one one, one line that you uh, you've said over the last year has to do with uh, what we have in common and what we. Uh, I'm not even going to try to quote that correctly because you say it so well. Yeah, there's more that unites us than divides us, and that's what we need to concentrate on. Let's work on what unites us, and that's the way that we move this industry forward. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much, Jennifer Houston, president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Again, uh, the, the convention will be coming up in uh, that first week of February, San Antonio, Texas. It's going to be a great time down there. It's going to be warm for us northern folks. That, <laughs> that'll be feeding it's hay It's usually that time. beautiful in, in February in San Antonio, so we hope so. Well, again, uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us here today. And thank you for our listeners joining us on the Cattleman's Call podcast. If it's your first time, thanks for joining us. Subscribe on uh, wherever you uh, get your podcast, whether it's Android, Apple devices, or if you've joined us before, thanks for coming back. And we encourage you, uh, drop us a note online. I will uh, give the link to the website, and there's an email address where you can share uh, suggestions uh, on shows that you'd like to hear, people that you think would be great to be featured. And again, we just want to tell the, the cattlemen and women's story about what's going on in the countryside and just to show that we have a lot in common. And it's just great to, to hear the, the stories and, and the lives that uh, so many uh, great industry leaders have led. And, uh, again, Jennifer Houston has led a great life and, and a great leader for the industry. Thanks for joining us here today. Friends, I'll do it for today's Cattlemen's Call. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattlemen's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.